This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and centre. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. So it feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioural challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You are listening to The Cable, Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson still very cold in Seattle, Washington. But he will be here tomorrow. Right now, I'm joined by Marcus Ashworth, my wonderful co-host for the day, uh, joining me. We also have a ton, Marcus, to talk about. The IMF making a lot of headlines, saying uh, that we could be at a turning point here. (laughs) Not for UK. The UK still is in deep trouble. But Europe, China, US could be at a turning point. Growth, not terrible. Inflation, slowing a touch. Uh, We all start at the end of January as well. Um, European markets closing a little bit mixed. But man, what a start to the year, Marcus. Well, the only thing that gives me confidence is the IMF is bearish on the UK. They are always wrong, <laughs> reliably and wonderfully wrong for all the wrong reasons as well. Having read through the report and their analysis, none of it makes much sense. Bless them. Uh, so I think that therefore UK should be doing really rather well. So it's the best news I've heard all day. Fair enough. Fair enough. Counter indicator. Go buy UK and sell everything else. We're going to get to that as well. There's also a great Bloomberg economics report out that might contradict what Marcus is saying. But we will get to that uh, in just a moment. Um, Let's get some other headlines here with Charlie Pellet. Thank you very much, Alex Steele. Here's what's going on. A UK rail union that has held strikes for months says it is considering an improved offer from train companies, raising the prospect that walkouts may end In the near future, some 14 train companies have offered a two-year deal to rail staff that includes a 5% pay increase or a 1,750-pound raise, whichever is greater for the current fiscal year, followed by a 4% raise next year. Now, this is according to a statement from the TSSA union. Another major union, the RMT, is also considering a similar offer made to its members by the Rail Delivery Group. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak's spokesman says Britain should brace for significant disruption tomorrow as hundreds of thousands of workers prepare to strike across the UK's railways, schools, and civil service. UK mortgage approvals fell to their lowest level in two and a half years as higher borrowing costs took their toll on the property market. And Brexit is costing the UK economy $100 billion pounds a year, with the effects spanning everything from business investment to the ability of companies to hire workers, this according to an analysis by Bloomberg Economics. That is the latest from the news desk. Alex Steele, back to you now here in New York. Okay, lovely setup. So th- this is the part that the IMF said about uh, the UK. The UK is going to be the only group of seven member whose economy will shrink this year, a contraction of six-tenths of one percent. This is even worse than Russia's outlook. Okay, that's what the IMF said. Then we get to this amazing Bloomberg Economics report quantifying the cost of Brexit. So I wanted to kind of dig into that uh, a little bit on the heels of the IMF data. So Marcus and I now joined by Anna Aradne, a Bloomberg Europe economist. She joins us to discuss the report. Anna, walk me through the findings of how you guys got to this £100 billion a year loss from the UK economy because of Brexit. Yes. Uh, hi there. So yeah, it's not. I mean, it's a complicated exercise. It's not. It's not super precise. But actually, what we did was just that we looked at the UK performance um, and the relationship that it had uh, with the G7 economies, which is actually pretty close. And we just project how the UK GDP would have fared if that relationship would have held from 2016, so from the referendum onwards. And then we just compared that with the actual data, and that gives us a shortfall of four percent um, of GDP. 
So, Anna, um, I believe, I might be wrong, there was something called the pandemic and also the war on Ukraine that came through. Now, I presume you're modelling it fairly in the sense of the effect across the G7, why should UK be different? But do we think that the UK perhaps was different uh, and the two very large factors, I think probably far more important to the overall economic performance than Brexit itself, have maybe skewed the numbers. The reason why I'm saying that is because obviously the, the divergence is noticeable since Brexit actually happened, though we know there was a four or five year period or however long it was, not lose track now, of, of everyone preparing for Brexit and haggling over it, which there doesn't seem to be very much divergence at all uh, until, I guess, Brexit officially happened. But I mean, I, I don't know how else you, you could model for it. And I appreciate that. And I, and I think it offers some very interesting insights. It's just that I just tend to think it's very hard to pick out Brexit from the much bigger effects, I think, of of the pandemic and indeed uh, of the Ukraine war. Yeah. But then again, I probably would say that. No, definitely. I mean, the pandemic obviously complicates things, but I will just say um, two things on that. The first is that these divergence started to open up before the pandemic. So there was some kind of, you know, shortfall in GDP already before. And the second is that when you then, if you look at the report, we also kind of zoom in on the possible uh, reasons for this weakness. And one of them is just business investment. Now, if you look at business investment and how it fared with the average G7, then you actually look that since, see that since 2016, UK private business investment grew by 19% less than the G7 average. So that's a big number. For me, that's the most striking uh, number on the analysis, to be honest. Uh, so I respect your, I, I take your, I take your point, but I see that, that that weakness kind of, you know, precedes the pandemic. So I guess the question is, can at some point the UK get that investment back? I mean, that's what the Tory party is going to keep saying, right? That they're going to become this haven for investment and stuff. Can that actually happen? Like, can we make back that money? Um, yeah. So, I mean, the 19% shortfall is a shortfall at the moment. We don't want to be saying that this will be will be will be permanent. One reason that's behind that weakness in investment was clearly that since the referendum, the UK has lived through a climate of just widespread uncertainty, and that started um, a lot but with the heightened tensions between the UK and EU, and then a pandemic and an energy crisis followed, which also um, didn't help. So now, now uncertainty it's hedging uh, it's hedging down, so that should help. Um, but, you know, we'll have to see whether um, that's enough. Uh, I don't think that will be enough for an immediate, you know, bounce back, just because there's still a lot of uncertainty around the kind of um, relationship and cooperation that the UK wants to have the EU. Uh, but um, but yeah, we'll, we'll have to see. And we'll also have to see uh, whether the UK leaving the, the, um, the EU didn't have kind of a lasting impact on its standing as an, as an attractive um, yeah, um, investment destination. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I mean... Uh, going back to the IMF, I mean, do you think they are fair in their assessment? Because they do seem to pick on the UK. Maybe it's just, again, <laughs> just me. He's taking it personally now. Well. <laughs> well, I mean, it's not just the IMF, to be fair. I think the OECD are also worth, not worth listening to either. Uh, because both of these uh, august international organisations, which are trying to, you know, from the 30,000 foot, you know, view the world, and they don't have... Um, perhaps the focus to quite such a that indeed the, either the OBR, the Treasury or the Bank of England in theory do, let alone a plethora of other uh, um, economists sort of doing various different models. But it does seem the OECD and the IMF have been very badly wrong on the UK, particularly uh, really in the, over the last two or three years. 
Um, yeah, so I, what I would say to that is that, you know, the 0.6% contraction for next year that the IMF is forecasting is actually sits somewhere in between our forecast for 0.4% uh, uh, contraction and the consensus forecast for 0.9%. Um, and, you know, like, I think we're, we became a bit more positive at the start of the year because of the fall in natural gas prices and also because of the signs of resilience we've been, we've been seeing in the UK economy. Um, but I think there is a point um, where the IMF might be, wrong, might be right that the UK will, be ta- will probably take a bigger hit than the G7. And obviously, we cannot really compare um, the UK to the US because mm-hmm. the US economy was just running so hot last year. Uh, but I think it would be a fair comparison to look at Europe. And I think there's three things uh, happening to the UK specifically that are not well, that are not happening to the same scale in Europe. And the mm-hmm. first one is the kind of the energy price shock. Uh, so there's much more of an immediate pass through uh, to, uh, to energy prices in the UK. Um, so the, the shock uh, from energy is slightly bigger. The second is the restrictive monetary policy. The BOE is much more advanced yeah. into their tighter uh, cycle. And then the, the third is this weakness, um, Brexit-induced weakness yeah. um, playing up in the background. All right, and we got to leave it there. Um, Anna Rodney from Bloomberg Intel uh, Economics, I should say. Thank you so very much for bringing your analysis with us. To be fair, I feel the same way about the the IEA, I'm not going to lie, about their forecast. But anyway, we'll talk about French strikes next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Listen to The Cable, Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Marcus Ashworth joins me over from the UK. So uh, of the nuggets that we got today, we also got a read on fourth quarter GDP over in Europe. So overall, the euro area could actually be avoiding a recession because it did uh, grow just a little bit uh, in the fourth quarter. And actually, France was one of the countries that expanded. Can that actually continue? And that brings me to what we're seeing today, which is massive strikes that are hitting France in French rail workers, teachers, airport staff, energy workers, public servants. They are all there to protest Macron's plan uh, to try and curb deficits and lower um, the pension retirement age to 64 from 62. So let's get more on this. Um, Respikes reporter from Bloomberg, Eamon Farhad, joins us now to discuss. All right, Eamon, we're going to start with France and then go to the UK also because they're going to get hit with strikes tomorrow. Um, How's it going? How do we know? How many people showed up? What do we know about it? Yes, as you said today, we had a mass walkout in France. Um, you know, France, when they strike, they really do it well. You know, last time they had this mass strike <laughs> action, which was about um, a week ago. Um, it was like millions taking to the street. We won't get official numbers probably till the next few days, um, but it is looking like big numbers took to the streets. The union uh, situation in France means that really people can take strike action much easier than in the UK. And that's why we see this kind of general strike action against Macron's plans, as you said. So, um <laughs> Um, I did like your line there, because I was going to use that myself, that the French really do know how to strike. Um, and um, we? we will find out, maybe we will, yeah. um, we'll find out tomorrow whether or not a bit of the uh, Gallic uh, verve has come across our way, because we've got, um, well, it could be as many as a million, but certainly it's going to be a, over half a million in the UK probably coming out. But I mean, um, the, the, the existential question for me here is, Macron's got to win on the pension uh, front, yeah. not only because it means his He's a dead duck domestically, but he's a dead duck within the EU as well. So, I mean, how would you say it's panning out so far in whose favour? Um, yeah, in France, as you said, strikes in the past have taken down entire governments. Um, 
this is kind of the beginning of what could be quite a protracted, you know, series of strike action. Uh, people do seem very, you know, very riled up against it. For the moment, there has been, you know, lots of public support for the, these strikes and against the pension reform. So right now, it's not looking great on the opinion poll side, but we could be seeing things switching. You know, these things are very fast moving, and as people's lives are disrupted to such an extent, you know, where it's trains and hospitals and teachers mm-hmm. and everyone walking out in France uh, and taking to the streets, you know, that that could switch. All right, what's going to happen in the UK tomorrow? What are we expecting? So tomorrow in the UK, it's our biggest um, day of strike action in this kind of strike season. It's the biggest, um, this has been the biggest six months of strikes in about 30 years. And tomorrow is kind of the culmination of that. We're going to have mm-hmm. rail workers or rail drivers walking out. So almost no trains will be moving in the UK tomorrow. Over 300,000 teachers will be walking out, closing schools, being people who have to work from home to take care of their kids. We'll be having university staff and also all civil servants, not all, but a lot of civil servants, about 100,000 will be walking out, including passport controllers, you know, people working in various departments, people working at the British Museum won't be going in, Kew Gardens, you know, lots of random little departments as well. Um, so it'll be about almost 500,000 people walking out tomorrow in the UK. Wow. Wow. So, I mean, are we going to feel, uh, I'm going to say this very glibly, I don't mean this glibly, but so far the strikes, I don't think have had the impact that the unions themselves have wanted. Mm-hmm. Uh, this obviously is hence why they're joining it all up and trying to get the impression yeah. at least of some form of general strike. Uh, are they running out of money to subsidise, obviously, uh, paying for um, the strikers a nominal £50 a day, whatever it may be? Mm-hmm. Uh, are they going to be impacted by the fact that inflation will at some stage be coming down? And does the fact that teachers are off and it really does impact, I, I suppose, very much on working people, uh, will that make the, the heft, the, the push them over the line, so to speak, and, and make the government quake? Yeah, I mean, I think that when it comes to how long can these strikes go for, you know, you've got to sit back and look. These teachers, this is actually their first day of action in this current strike um, strike season. Um, this is their first day. They have a string of dates going into March. And as you said, you know, how long can they, these teachers strike for? Not all the unions actually pay their workers when they're on strike. So some of these unions, you know, the rail unions, they'll just be losing a day's income. So that's why all these rail workers who've been striking for six months, some of them, as we heard earlier, will be looking at accepting a deal because at some point, you know, you have to just go back to work and get back to earning money. Um, I think that, as you said, as it impacts people's lives, you know, the teachers, that is quite a big part of your life. Mm-hmm. So maybe you'll think about, you know, uh, think about not spoiling the strikes next time. I can't believe that guy escaped this and got to Seattle. I can imagine there are people at home that do not appreciate this point. Um, Eamon, thanks a lot. We'll check in with you tomorrow. I'm sure Eamon Barha joins us uh, there from Bloomberg. All right, coming up, I'll let Marcus talk more about the IMF. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, you're listening to The Cable, Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Marcus, Marcus Ashworth is over in London. So let's get to Marcus's favorite subject, the IMF. So earlier, Bloomberg spoke to the chief economist, Pierre-Louvier Gortinas. Um, they spoke about why the IMF raised its global growth forecast for the global economy. It's an upgrade compared to what we were expecting back in October. And this is due to resilience, resilience, resilience. We've had more resilient households in the U.S. and businesses as well. We've had resilience to the energy crisis in Europe. A lot of economies have done better than was initially expected. Labor markets have been very, very tight in many emerging and advanced economies as well. And then in addition to all this, you have the reopening of the Chinese economy that is promising to give a boost to global uh, activity in uh, uh, 2023. Now, that resilience, Pierre-Olivier, you know, is making the job of central bankers perversely harder here. Uh, What's your take? 
Well, there is a little bit of good news on the inflation front, but we should not exaggerate it. So what we are seeing is that global inflation, headline inflation, has peaked already in 2022 and is coming down in the vast majority of countries. The worry is more with what we call core inflation that excludes energy and, and food prices are typically more volatile. And this core inflation measures have shown more persistent and they have not peaked yet in many countries and they're still far away from central bank targets. So the job is not done. And you are right to point out that more resilience on activity could mean more price pressures, could mean that it's harder for central banks to bring down inflation to target, and therefore they might need to do more. That was the IMF chief economist joining us there. Marcus, where in the report, what did you agree with the IMF? Um, yeah, uh, ask no, another no, question. No, for real? <laughs> Nowhere? Uh, no, I mean, I just think the uh, trouble with the IMF is is that they are always backward looking. They always correct themselves. And, oh, it's far improved from last quarter. Yeah, because you got it wrong. You, you, they have no idea uh, of, of of looking forward and predicting anything. Their their calls are almost always backward looking, just correcting what what we now know from what their view was the the previous time they they updated it. And it, it's it frustrates me that we we treat them with such reverence. It's like why would a supranational organization know better about a specific economy than the, the, the myriad of people within that own economy. And, and yes, I know it's not you know, listen to what a government says about its own country, but there are plenty, plenty of think tanks in the UK uh, willing to throw rocks at any opportunity to get a, a more balanced view. At the end of the day, it's only really the Bank of England that matters here, their view, which you'll find out on Thursday. And, you know, the same with the OECD. If these guys had a good track record, if they actually look forward and, and clearly laid out a trend where they think things are going to happen, admit where they got it wrong and, and at least give some guidance. I, I would treat them with more respect, but to be quite frankly, it's just hot air. Mm. And I, it slightly frustrates me when they come up with, I think that their reading, particularly in the UK, is wrong. It's been wrong for quite a long while. And some of the reasons they stated in particular, saying that because there's the, they reckon a high level of variable rate mortgages uh, in the UK, therefore the impact of, it, of the Bank of England rate hikes are going to have much more effect on, on on financial conditions. That's simply blinkly wrong. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you know, some of their, their facts that they're basing it on, to my mind, is backdated, and, and uh, I don't know where they get their data from. So can we just go to the broad strokes? Like growth isn't as terrible as we thought. Um, inflation's still a problem, but slowly not as bad as we thought. I mean, yeah, I mean, we great, agree with this, though, but, right? In theory. Yeah, but, but it's not. It's not telling us anything. It's not adding to the sum of human knowledge. Uh, you know, I could have told you this literally three months ago. Uh, and, I think and you did tell is, me this three months ago. Yeah, what did he? Uh, look, I mean, it's it's a nice round. Uh, they collect a lot of data. It's a very easy for journalists to go and and look back and compare contrast. They're, they're, as a data source, it's it's very interesting, and, and I'm sure it has some value. As a predictive source. I find it uh, not worth the, you know, the entrance fee. No. Okay, fair enough. So let, let's go broader here. So um, where do you, so if we're looking at the central banks that are coming out, you got the Fed, you got the BOE, and you got the, the ECB. Which bank do you think is best placed to continue a hiking cycle and disrupt less? I mean, I'm just trying to think like oh, ECB does 150 uh, basis points more, but the data so far uh, shows that maybe it can hold it. Like it, it, it might be okay. I think that's false optimism, but yes, I mean clearly the 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 ECB was late the party and they'll have to carry on hiking after the rest of them have, have slowed down and stopped. I think the Fed's clearly in the best place um, and with regard to understanding and appreciate where it's coming from. I wouldn't be surprised if they're a bit more aggressive uh, tomorrow and, and go fifty. 
um, but then do a sort of 50 and done type approach uh, and pause. That might be the, the best quote scenario. But I expect to be 25 just purely because they've been very keen on tweaking or leaking uh, via mm -hmm. speeches or, or newspaper articles up to up to recently. So why would they not do it this time? I didn't feel that the market was right with 25. Um, in some senses, you know, dare I say to praise it, the Bank of England actually are far more nuanced. Mm. They have a very difficult situation. There's a possibility even that some of the, the members could vote for a, a cut because they voted for a, nothing last time around and it was a 50 basis point hike. But, so but, it, but is the data the telling us that be. we would need a cut? No, of course not. But uh, the point sure. is is that I do think that there is a chance that we have another at least three-way split, possibly even four-way split in the Bank of England. But... I do think they are realizing that we're close to the end and they are trying their best to work their way through a difficult scenario. But they are also doing more than the others in the sense of quantitative tightening and you know active uh, selling bonds back. So they're all in slightly different places. Um, I, I think it's 25 from the Fed, 50 from the Bank of England, same for the ECB, all for different reasons in their own different spaces. But I do think the Fed will slow down first, the Bank of England will be right behind it, and the ECB will, as usual, get it wrong, but finally work it out and if the Fed does the hard work for me, it will be the best, luckiest well, break the ECB's ever had. Okay, fair. But before we let you go, like, what what are the chances that we're gonna that the ECB is gonna be the volatile mover for markets now going forward, though? Yeah, that's a very good point, and, and quite possibly. I mean, we can see the strength of the euro. It's up, you know, one hundred eight and a half. Um, it's clearly got away from that that sort of sub uh, dollar parity point. Uh, it, it's far more stable. It's the relative difference people do expect. Uh, the ECB to carry on having to raise rates while the, while the Fed slows, even though they're at a higher level. So that advantage will last for a while, not forever. Uh, yes, there's some stronger economic data coming through from Europe. I don't believe it because I think it's very much driven by government spending and by all the various different bailouts and more to come. It's not the type of growth you want to see. It's, it's, it's government subsidy. So it, how long yeah. it lasts? I hope they get lucky. Marcus, pleasure. Thank you. I release you into the wild. Uh, coming up next, we'll hear from UBS CEO. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable, Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Let's get you caught up on U.S. markets right now. You were looking at a rally trying to get underway here. The Nasdaq up by one full percentage point. The S&P up by seven tenths. We did have some interesting data. You had the employment cost index, which is what the Fed's going to look at for the fourth quarter, coming in around 1%. Okay, it could have been worse. That's kind of my theme for all the data we got. Chicago PMI coming in 44.3. Okay, could have been worse. Consumer uh, Conference Board consumer confidence also coming in a little lighter. Expectations slipping a little bit. Present situation a little bit better. Okay. Could have been worse. And the Dallas Fed Services activity, negative 15. Yep, you know it. Could have been worse. Um, markets responding quite counterintuitively, I guess. It could have been worse. Therefore, go buy equities. I'm not really sure. We also have earnings that are coming out that are also a little bit confusing. And I give you, just case in point, McDonald's. Um, really solid numbers. Comp sales were up almost 13%. Revenue beat. They were able to pass through uh, prices. They're going to open almost 2,000 new restaurants this year. But the short-term inflationary pressures will continue in 2023, and comp sales were negative in China. And then the stock gets hit. Caterpillar also dramatically underperforming, but we're going to talk about that in just a second. If you're priced to perfection and you don't deliver perfection, well, then you wind up getting hit. That's a quick snapshot of U.S. markets. Let's get some other headlines for you with Charlie Pell. Hi, thank you very much, Alex Steele. Here's what's going on. Inflation on British groceries jumped to another record in January. 
with little sign of price rises slowing on consumers' weekly shopping trips. The rate hit 16.7% in the four weeks to January 22nd, up from 14.4% in December, reaching the highest level since Kantar started tracking the data in 2008. The increase, by the way, adds an extra 788 pounds to shoppers' annual spend on groceries. Lloyd's of London's going to be handing some staff an extra 1,500 pounds to cover rising living costs as inflation persists into 2023. The insurance exchange told staff those earning less than 75,000 pounds will receive the one-time contribution. This move comes after Lloyd's last year gave the same staff an extra 2,500 pounds as soaring energy bills and food prices created a cost-of-living crisis. The British carrier Flybee has ceased operation and all of its flights to and from the UK have been cancelled less than a year after the low-cost airline started flying again. The Civil Aviation Authority told passengers not to go to the airport unless they had arranged flights with another airline. Sky News says some 277 staff out of a workforce of 321 people were made redundant. Flybee started operating again in April after collapsing in 2020 when the pandemic wiped out demand for air travel. That is the latest from the news desk. Alex Steele, back to you now here in New York. All right, Charlie, thank you so much. So UBS reported earnings this morning. Um, the stock did close down 2%. It was off by about 4%, though, earlier in the session. Uh, fourth quarter profit beat expectations. They also announced plans to repurchase more than $5 billion worth of shares. Um, yep, trading revenue slumped. Wealth management fees slumped. We kind of knew that was coming. But rising interest rates uh, did really help. Overall, their net income was about $1.65 billion. That's a 35% jump um, at over at the wealth management unit. That's pretty That's pretty nice. Um, that's the margin that they're going to make on loans. Um, they did seem to get some customers from Credit Suisse. They want to be expanding their wealth management unit in Asia as well. Manus Cranny uh, spoke with the CEO, Ralph Hammers, earlier. They talked about inflation, earnings, monetary policy. Here's some of this conversation. Well, so indeed, we had a very good set of numbers in the fourth quarter, and not only on the income side, but specifically also on the underlying flow side, 23 billion of net new fee generating assets, 11 billion of net new money, 9 billion of net new deposits, basically showing the trust of our customers to basically place the money with us and for us to help them manage it. Uh, On the back of that, clearly with lower market values on the fee uh, income, that was a bit lower. But the interest income really came through. It is very much the dollar effect and the Swiss franc effect now as well. On the dollar effect, we feel most, like, most likely peaked. However, there is more to come on euro and certainly also on the Swiss franc. Just on those <coughs> underbanks, we caught up two weeks ago. Um, and there was the feeling that maybe we're near the top of these central banks in terms of the hiking cycle, specifically the Fed. Paul Krugman joined us yesterday and he said, be careful. Stop getting over your skis and overconfident on inflation. Are you overconfident that we've peaked on inflation? Um, We may have peaked on inflation, but it doesn't mean that the central banks will not further increase some rates, just to be sure. I do think that they are very clear in terms of what they want to achieve. They really want to get the structural inflation down. And that could come uh, along with a real deceleration of economic growth. I think the recipe is that we rather have a short-term pain with a long-term gain than not being tough enough in order to get that uh, inflation back to that level. And that is what I think central banks have 
in their minds. In the fourth quarter, you've had some short-term pain. The fees were down 17%, transactions were down 19%. Is that the worst? Is that, is that the nadir of, of the sidelining of wealth management clients? Well, if you look at, uh, at, at the, two, uh, the different components on the wealth management side, so first, what is important is that you see that the trust is there and that clients mm-hmm. come to you. That basically shows that we have the right professional services, we have the right products, we have the right advice, we can take them through uh, a period of challenges and unclarity. That period of unclarity is still there, right? So we see positive news coming from China, we see positive news uh, coming on, on, on also inflation, uh, we see some light life back in the leveraged capital markets, which is normally a leading indicator. However, all early, all early movements. So I don't think there is a trend there yet. So for the moment, I do think that our clients are hopeful, but in a wait and see pattern. Well, there has been a move to risk on assets. This is the debate. <coughs> well, one month in, there's been a move to risk on assets. You use the word sideline for wealth management clients in the fourth quarter. Are they nibbling? Are they active in acquiring risk on client, risk on assets? That's not what we see. We truly see that they are waiting for more clarity to come. And I think that's wise. Uh, we really want to make sure that there is more visibility. Mm-hmm. I do think that the coming weeks will bring that more visibility. We see there are central banks coming to the market. We see uh, the New Year's, uh, the Chinese New Year's behind us and mm-hmm. see whether the, the positivism coming from China will continue. We see corporate earnings coming through in the next couple of weeks as well. So I think the, couple of, the next couple of weeks from different sites will give us much more data points to get a feel for should we be risk on or not. Fit or kill on risk on in the next couple of months. Um, the, the other aspect for me is the releveraging. Every time we get together, you say deleveraging in Asia, deleveraging, deleveraging. Is 2023 going to be the year of releveraging given the boom, the, the sort of the mini boost that we've had from China? Well, it really depends. So if the investor confidence is there and they are going to go risk on, our investors uh, and our advice will always be, okay, what does leverage cost you? Because mm-hmm. you should realize that vis-a-vis the last decade with very low rates, leverage was almost free. Leverage going forward is not almost free. It will come at a cost. So that will be a different, uh, a, a different perspective in terms of taking on further leverage or not. We do expect at a certain moment that to turn and, and leverage to come back into the market. Uh, in Asia, we've seen more towards the end of the fourth quarter. We've seen some stopping of the deleveraging there. But it's too early to tell whether that's a trend. That was CEO of UBS, Ralph Hammers, uh, joining me in his cranny there, speaking after earnings. Now, let's focus on earnings in the U.S. Coming up, we're going to talk about Caterpillar. I, I love this company. It has its mind, its hands in everything from farming to mining. They have a great global picture. We're going to break down why the stock is down by 3.5%. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. It is earnings season, most definitely, here in the U.S. Lots to choose from. I decided to take a little bit of time with Caterpillar. The stock is down over 3.5%. It has first earnings miss since 2020. Uh, It did show strong revenue and strong demand, but the cost picture was the dicey part. But I wanted to get more into this with Bloomberg Deputy Team Leader. It just means he's in charge of a lot of stuff. Of Metals and Ags, uh, Joe Doe, uh, joins me now. Hey, Joe, why is the stock down? Why, Why are people disappointed here? 
Yeah, I think uh, one analyst at, at Edward Jones told me, well, listen, you came into the year, you came into earnings with Caterpillar up 10%, far outperforming most of its peers and outperforming a lot of the heavy industry space. So they're expecting numbers to be really good. And they came in good, but not great, right? So profit was actually a little bit lower than what people were expecting. Caterpillar rightly pointed out, guys, margins looked really good this mm-hmm, quarter. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I do think there's a little bit of worry that the margins, excuse me, the, the, the costs from manufacturing costs and material costs are not as, uh, are maybe a little worse than people expected. And then during the call, uh, maybe a bit unexpectedly, um, the CEO mentioned China demand. And he said, you know, we actually see China demand in 2023 being lower mm. than 2022, Uh-oh. which seems to go against kind of how people were hoping uh, to hear, you know, with China reopening and everything else in in, in January. So that didn't work out. Also, I should point out to your point, uh, 52-week high was hit on Friday. So, yeah. like, there was obviously that in the stock. Talk to me about the inventory, the dealer inventory, how that sort of tracks through everything. Yeah, the dealer inventories are pretty good, right? Mm-hmm. So they, they had been working down the inventories over 21 and 22. Uh, and then looking ahead to 23, they said in the, the presentation slides, listen, we don't see dealer inventories being changed that much from, from last year. So they expect sales to be up. They don't expect dealer inventories to be rising too much. So th- those numbers look good. I mean, again, analysts did try to dig in a little more. They tried to get a little more transparency over region and, and sector. Of course, they said, we don't carry as much inventory on, on mining equipment. But you know, they said, listen, mining is in good shape. Mining, energy, they see commodity prices being up this year. So, I, you know, I, I just it, think- It sounded messy. It sounded like it was it's a, a so messy, messy quarter. Mm-hmm. It's so messy. And, and I think, as we said at the top of the call, investors were expecting a lot. They didn't get everything they wanted. And having to parse through this and that, you know, they just said, okay, We'll sell a little bit of it. I mean, it's off four percent today, but I mean, gosh, the stock's been up every run. year for the past four years. It's it's been a really good run. Do we? Is there a read through from Caterpillar to any of its other competitors right now that we need to start keying in on? Well, I think the only thing they're really talking about with competitors is they're just going to keep pricing them, out pricing them, right? So, mm-hmm. I mean, this is what Caterpillar has done so well through the pandemic. They've been able to hike prices. And people keep buying them. You know, and one of the reasons I've said this to so many people is people that actually buy Caterpillar equipment, they just love their machines. Mm-hmm. They're just the best main machines. You know, the the help from the the dealer network is incredible. So if mm-hmm. you have a problem, somebody comes out to you pretty quickly. You know, they handle all the digital equipment very well. Um, and so they continue to have pricing power in a market that a lot of people are saying, oh, it's weak, but they're saying doesn't matter, we're gonna keep raising these prices. Didn't their, didn't their margins grow like 700 basis points or something? Something insane. Like, yeah, I mean, not at all what we think would be a thing. The margins were uh, different numbers. I mean, they're 14%, 20%, depends on which ones you're looking at. Mm-hmm. But it's just, I mean, again, it, it's, it's good. You know, of course, people in the tech industry listen to that and say, well, this sounds crazy. But it, this is just mostly really good. Things are in pretty good financial shape. But yeah, I think people today are just taking a little bit of a breather. Yeah. Um, before we go, uh, more on China. So did they give any more color as to, what they're seeing and any softness there? The 10 ton and above excavator market, which just means excavators used in construction, mm-hmm. uh, they're just not seeing a pickup in demand that they were hoping for. 
Um, what about mining? Because that's the housing story and the property issues there. Did they say anything about mining in China? Or? They didn't go into specifics on mining in mm-hmm. China. Uh, but oftentimes what we see investors play here is if they're hearing the excavator market is weak, they kind of say, well, maybe that means everything on the whole is weak. And even mm-hmm. though it's only 5 to 10% of their revenue, it matters in a much bigger level. Right, because they're going to need growth from somewhere to right. do something um, at some point. That was really articulate. All right, Joe, thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. Joe Doe joining us. Uh, he knows everything Caterpillar. Uh, coming up, we'll talk a little bit about GM, do a little bit of Boeing. Guy will be joining me from Seattle, Washington. You're listening to The Cable. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Listen to The Cable. Let's get more on earnings here. Uh, GM, that stock up by 8%. It beat on profit. It beat on sales. The EV price war worry that we're seeing uh, supposedly between Tesla and Ford, they kind of shrugged that off. Um, Bloomberg was able to speak to GM CFO Paul Jacobson earlier, um, and they talked about the demand for EVs across the company. Demand for our vehicles remains quite strong for our EVs and, and for our ICE portfolio as well. So, um, you know, as we look at the, the, the business, um, competition is no, no stranger to us. We, we've been in the business for over 100 years, and uh, I think the, the team is uh, really, really good at competing. And uh, where we see um, consumer demand for our vehicles at our price points is, is really strong. We just need to make sure we get production uh, up to be able to meet that demand. So you're saying basically you're not going to cut prices because you don't need to. People still are uh, really uh, requiring uh, your cars regardless of what the price is. Yeah, we, we have waiting lists for, for all of our vehicles as we roll out, and we expect production to ramp up pretty quickly as we get especially into the back half of 23 to to meet our goal of delivering 400,000 EVs by the first half of 2024 and a million EVs uh, annually by 2025. Uh, We believe the demand is there and strong. So how does this really pair with the story that we're seeing out of auto sales with sagging sales, one of the worst years last year, going back in a number of decades as a whole, and people are talking about demand waning on the margins? Why is GM seeing such a different picture? Well, I think, you know, a couple of things. One, the quality of our launches and, and the new vehicles that we've brought to market um, uh, are really being received well by our, our consumers. I think our our engineering and manufacturing teams uh, partnered with our supply chain teams, did a great job of uh, increasing production uh, last year by uh, 25% over 2021. Uh, and uh, and we've been seeing vehicles move very, very quickly once, they get, once we get them to dealers. Uh, we have seen some challenges uh, in the outbound logistics. So this is after we finish a vehicle and getting it to the dealers that's caused our inventories uh, to increase a little bit. Uh, We're up to about 50 days of inventory. But if you look at the the vehicles that are on the lots at dealers, they're about a third of what they were in 2019. Uh, Some of that is going to be, I think, permanent synergies. But some of that just speaks to how quickly vehicles are turning when they get delivered uh, to dealerships. And that's a testament to the the quality of the products we produce. That was Paul Jacobson, GM CFO. Let's go from car to planes because, you know, they have wheels. Um, We're bidding farewell to the Queen of the Skies. The first and final 747 jumbo jet model um, started with a handshake deal back in the 60s, and the last one is now rolling off the lot. And in Seattle, Washington, Guy Johnson is there for all of it, and he joins me now. Guy, you have an interview with Dave Calhoun in about a couple hours' time. What are you going to ask him? I want to talk to him about how he recreates what was created here at Boeing back in the late 60s when they put together a team that ultimately became known as the Incredibles to build the 747. This was a company that was stretched financially, stretched with resources, but 
the 747 became sort of emblematic of a of an America that was pushing the boundaries at every level, space, air travel, everything. And the 747 was right at the heart of that. He, he was able to produce this program in the face of so much kind of adversity, financial adversity, the time adversity, and, and produce this incredible product. Is Boeing capable? Does it still have it within its DNA to do that again? It's, it's less about product and it's more about people. It's about the people that he has, the talent that he has within this company. How does he harness it to do that again? And what do you think the response is going to be? Like, how is he going to sell it? What's the selling point for Boeing right now? So that's, it's, I think it's a really important question because I think at the moment you've got Amazon laying people off. You've got Microsoft laying people off. Now, these are two native Seattle companies, and there's, there's, therefore there is talent available why can, how do they get these people to want to come and work at Boeing? Mm-hmm. How do they turn it back into that kind of, that atmosphere that was created in the late 60s, that, that people, would, people were being escorted from their desks because they hadn't left their desks out of the building, and they would then walk around the building and come back in the other side so they could go back to their desks and carry on. That kind of, that kind of motivation, that kind of spirit can he recreate that? How does he recreate that is a key question, I think, for Dave Calhoun. Yeah, and also sort of how quickly they need to do that. Like, it's, when does yeah. it get super dire at that point for Boeing? It seems like we're kind of there. Yeah, but Boeing's had a really tough time recently. Mm-hmm. Let's not deny it. Um, the, the 737 MAX, the 787, the 777X, I, it, it's some huge challenges right now. And a bit like then, so back then the, the balance sheet was stretched and the CEO then kind of, went round the country to the bank to try and make sure that he knew what he needed to do. And, and you kind of get the feeling that Dave Calhoun is in that kind of same position. He needs to convince the investor base. He needs to convince the staff that this is a company that can keep going and keep delivering. Um, and time is not on size. There is a huge, There is a huge opportunity here that Boeing needs to deliver upon. There is a huge opportunity that... that the, the coming green greening of the aviation industry offers, but they have to be ready to take it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so this is, you haven't been to the U.S. in a bit. Uh, how's it going? What's it like? I hear it's cold. Did your phone drop or you just don't want to talk to me anymore? Both of these things are very possible. You still there? Oh, we lost him. Uh, I wouldn't take it personally, but my story I wanted to get to is the guy went to a Trader Joe's. So if you don't know what Trader Joe's is because you live in the UK, it's like a really great place to buy in bulk for cheap. Not like a Costco or a BJ's. They have like freshly produced stuff insanely cheap. And if you go on like a Sunday at six, you're going to be there for your entire life because it gets so packed with people um, starting to uh, deal with their work week. Anyway, apparently he went there. I have pictures of this. He was in a Trader Joe's. For us, this is really cool. The team's really excited about it. Um, okay, so that wraps it up uh, for the cable. Let's go ahead and take a look at what we're looking at tomorrow. Uh, lots of things coming out in the U.S. Uh, you got construction spending. Yeah, okay. But you have ISM manufacturing and prices paid, employment new orders. That's going to be really interesting. We're going to have the first mover read uh, on that in the U.S. Uh, ADP employment, a nice jobs precursor. We're going to have that there. Over in Europe, uh, you're going to be dealing with um, European inflation. That's going to be interesting. We also have earnings from the likes of, of 
Glencore, for example, what the demand pull they're going to see from China also going to be quite quite interesting. And oh, right. Yeah. The Fed um, will be delivering its rate decision at 2 p.m. Uh, New York time. That does it for me. Guy will be in the studio in New York tomorrow. Have a great night, guys. This is Bloomberg.